Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. Resuming the studies we've been undertaking in this great book, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The writer has been contrasting, well, comparing and contrasting Jesus and Moses, saying about both of them that they were faithful in all of God's house, but then distinguishing between them, saying that whereas Moses was a servant in the house of God, Christ is a son. So in verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then beginning in verse 7, where we're studying this morning, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The Bible tells us the really big story about God and through the unfolding drama of that story, it first of all captures the experience of Israel as a nation, culminating as it does in the coming to our planet of the main character of the story, whose presence you can feel in every page, as in every story, he is the star attraction. The great Puritan pastor and professor John Owen used to say, Old Testament examples our New Testament instructions. In other words, as we come to the Bible, we often use those descriptors, old and new. Sometimes we use those descriptions as if the old is obsolete, the new is better. When in fact, in the Bible, I think really we should try not to use those uh, descriptions and rather hold to the sacred writings comprising the former and the later Scripture uh, that we have. Because the reality is, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
that everything that happened, that everything we read about in the Scripture up to the coming of Jesus, all those things we're told, all those events were recorded, were written, we're told, for our instruction. Everything that was going on with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, everything that was going on with Israel as a nation, God is dealing with humanity, if you like, dealing with humanity at a kind of baby stage of humanity's development and growth, teaching them through signs and wonders, through uh, instructions and events and experiences, teaching them to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And now here we are in a different place in history, at a different point in history, with so much in terms of resources now, of understanding that we can grasp. And we look back at their story and we learn from their experience how it is that God deals with us in our experience today. Now, I said earlier that uh, the writer has been comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus, uh, comparing them because mo both Moses and Jesus worked within God's house. God's house defined there as uh, the believers, uh, the, the, the family of God, the people of God. Moses is the first great leader of the people of God, the great pastor and shepherd of the people of God. And Jesus is the culminating leader and pastor of the people of God. And both of them, and here is the kindness of God to us, both of them, says the, the author, were faithful. And you might think to yourself, well, how can you possibly compare someone like Moses and someone like Jesus? No matter how wonderful uh, Moses was, no matter how great Moses was, and he was great and wonderful as a leader, he is nothing to Jesus. In fact, the author has just said and been teaching us from chapter 1 that, that Jesus is, in fact, the human face of God, that the eternal Son takes on humanity, and that humanity we know as Jesus is the humanity that has been joined to the eternal Son of God, uh, the person of the Son of God Himself. And yet the kindness of God is that He points to Moses in the role that he was called to operate as a pastor and leader to the people. And He says, you know, you can say what you want about Moses. Moses was like us. He was weak like us. He sinned as we do. Jesus does not sin, and He is not weak as we are. But in their office, in their care for the flock of God, in their care for the people of God, in their roles as pastors, carers for God's people, both Moses and Jesus, the, the author says, were faithful to the job they'd been given to do. And it's, a, and it's an overwhelming kindness that we should be compared not to Jesus as the eternal God made flesh, but that we should be compared with Jesus in His humanity and be able to learn from Jesus in His human nature, faced with the trials, the tests, the temptations that we are faced with in our everyday lives, and that God should encourage us to look at Jesus not as the God who made the universe. We cannot imitate that. But to look at Jesus in His humanity as He learns wisdom, as He grows in wisdom and stature, as He experiences temptation and overcomes it, and as He serves God's house as a human being. 
Well, that's the background. And throughout this background, we have uh, references to the, to the uh, Scripture, and we'll see in a moment exactly what that means. Here in, in chapter uh, 3, verse 7, we have an immediate reference to the Old Testament, to the psalm that I read at the beginning of the service today, Psalm 95. And I want you to look at verse 7 there uh, and to pick up those words. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, as we've been unpacking Hebrews, we've identified God the Father in chapter 1. He is is actually not introduced to us there. We we come to see God the Father in chapter 1 by the fact that there is a Son. God has spoken in the past to the prophets. He has spoken to us in these last days through one who is Son. And we have learned something about God. We've learned that whatever we read about God in the Old Testament, even though the names are not used, when we read about God, we're reading about God the triune, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only with the coming of the Son do we realize that there is within the Godhead three as well as one, and the Son bears witness to that by being the Son, who is by very nature God. But we have been confessing, as we do all the time, that the one God of Israel is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, where has the Holy Spirit been all this time? Now, we have a mention of Him here in verse 7, and suitably placed after uh, we've been told about the enfleshment of Christ coming into the world and becoming flesh and blood with us. Where has He been all this time, the Holy Spirit? Has He been silent? Is the Holy Spirit absent from the pages of Scripture until the day of Pentecost? What has the Holy Spirit been doing all this time while God has been taking center stage? Well, that's a very reasonable question to ask. And, and I think you can see the answer if you simply take your Bible, and if you turn in your Bible to the first chapter of Hebrews, and you don't even have to look at it. If you're looking from a distance, you'll notice that there's a lot of wide spacing here and wide spacing there because they're quotations that are being made. I'm reducing this so that if you're two, you can understand. Some of you are two 40 times over. But, and you can find the same if you look at chapter 2. Do you see all the spacing there? These are quotations from the Old Testament. These are quotations from the Bible. And what we discover as we come to chapter 3, verse 7 is that all the time we thought we were just talking about the Father and the Son in chapter 1, we were actually at the very same time hearing the very presence of the other one, the so-called silent person within the Trinity. And we're discovering as we come to chapter 3 verse 7 that the third member of the Trinity is not that silent after all. As the Holy Spirit says. In other words, in order for Almighty God to communicate with us human beings, He has to do certain things to be able to communicate with us. So, chapter 1 and 2 was all about the Son of God 
as the Word of God, the expression of God, the self-expression of God Himself, the Word of God becoming flesh and blood. We saw that in chapter 2. He was made a little lower than the angels. He, he took on human form. He took on our flesh and blood. He, he makes Himself one of the children. He partakes of the same things as we have and are in order that He might destroy death and in order that He make, might make us members of the family of God. There was a time in which God could be seen and heard in flesh and blood with skin on, that, we could be, that God could be heard with the hearing of the ear because there he was standing there with crowds around him in Palestine, speaking to the multitudes. God came in the person of Jesus Christ so that one day when we all get to heaven, and that what a day of rejoicing that will be, we will all see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we will see with creaturely eyes one who is the very image of the invisible God, one who is God in flesh, and we will be able to see God in the one who says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the visible expression of God. And that was the mission of the Son of God. He came into the world so that you and I would be able to see God concretely, in a creaturely way, after a creaturely fashion, in the human nature of the Lord Jesus, now glorified in heaven. But the Holy Spirit is the second great gift of God to the people of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't take flesh. He doesn't become, uh, He doesn't take on a creaturely human nature. We don't get to see the Holy Spirit. But do you see what verse 7 is saying? It's saying we don't get to see Him, but we get to hear Him as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is not as silent as you might think. In fact, as you read the Bible, you discover that from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit has been sanctifying, that is, setting apart, putting a ring around certain individuals and people over the centuries, holy prophets. And then latterly, in the time of Jesus and after His resurrection, the apostles, the holy apostles, set apart by the Spirit. And through these holy apostles and holy prophets, He has been teaching us, speaking to us, giving them words to say which they have written down, and He has put in our hands this morning Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture is the Holy Spirit's book. Holy Scripture is the Holy Spirit's means of communication to us today. That's why we say about the Word of God that it's living and active, because the author of the Word of God, the speaker in the Word of God, is the third member of the Trinity. He is the Holy Spirit. He gets to be heard whenever we read the Bible, whenever we hear the Bible read, whenever we hear the Bible being preached. We get to hear the Holy Spirit speaking. That's why the author says here, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And do you notice what He says He is still saying to us? It does not say, as the Holy Spirit said, past tense. He is still saying, because in eternity, 
in eternity, the Holy Spirit is still delivering the Word of God. And here we are this morning in this room, and we've heard the Word of God read from our call to worship. We've heard the Word of God prayed in the prayers that we've offered. We've heard the Word of God read publicly, and now it's being preached in our ears. And the Holy Spirit of God is being heard. That's why when Jesus sends letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, they end with these words, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit gets heard because He is the communicator. He is the great communicator in our time. He is communicating with us today as Jesus did when He was an infleshed humanity back in the day. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. That's His great mission at this period in the history of redemption. As the Holy Spirit says. Now, the question is, what does the Holy Spirit say here? Well, I want you to notice three things. We hear what He says about Israel, what He says about God, and what He says about us. We hear what He says about Israel. That really is the point of verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice, those are words from Psalm 95 spoken to Israel. You can see that in verse 18. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Verse 17, with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Verse 18, to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? He's telling them the story. He's reminding us and reminding the people He's writing to. The Holy Spirit wants to remind us today. He's saying to us today, I want you to remember what happened with Israel. I want you to recall the story of Israel. No people on earth were as blessed as those people were. Whether you go right back to the very beginning of their story, they find themselves there in Egypt. They find themselves slaves to Pharaoh. They find themselves a period, a long period, over 400 years there in bondage. Their time there has got increasingly bad and increasingly hard. And God sends Moses to them. And Moses comes to them, and Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, I want you to, God says to you, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And at the end of the process, after the plagues have come, at the end of the process, there is that final plague when the firstborn in every house of Egypt will die under the judgment of God. And on that night in Egypt, in every house in Egypt, Israelite and Egyptian, something or someone died. Either the firstborn son died or the innocent lamb died. On that night, every family in Egypt, whether Israelite or Egyptian, had the opportunity to do what the Word of God said to them. Take a lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on the lintel and on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of judgment comes, I will see the blood and I will pass over, I will pass over you. We know from the story that there were Egyptians who believed that promise and did that very thing, and they were spared, and they went with Israel when it left Egypt for the promised land. 
And it's still the same today. That same promise of God is still the same today. The way to avoid the judgment of God is to be hidden under the blood of the Lamb of God. And we know the Lamb of God ultimately was Jesus. But here are these people. They were delivered from Egypt. About 1.2 million of them took their livestock. They took the treasures of Egypt. The people of Egypt were glad to see them go. They gave them treasure upon treasure upon treasure to take with them as they left. They escaped. They got over the Red Sea. You remember, Moses stood there. The Red Sea parted. They went across the sea, not in mud, as you would expect, but on dry land. It was an amazing demonstration of the power of God. They were led through the desert by this pillar of fire, surrounded by smoke, which they led them through the desert and hovered over them every evening, protected them from their enemies. They had these demonstrations of, the spectacular demonstrations of the provision of God. And yet what? What was their experience? What did they do with all of this spectacular demonstration of the reality of God every day of their life? They got out their tent They looked towards the tabernacle, and there was this enormous pillar of smoke. They went to bed at night. They looked at last one, last look towards the tabernacle. There is this enormous pillar of fire. You couldn't get away from it. It was supernatural. It was a demonstration of the reality of God, and it was there in their faces every day. What did they do? They started murmuring. They're no sooner across the Red Sea. They've no sooner sang their song of joy along with uh, Miriam, Aaron's sister, as she grabbed her tambourine and all the women followed her and started singing a song of joy, saying to the Lord, He has exalted highly the horse and the rider He has hurled into the sea. They'd no sooner done that than they start murmuring, complaining, moaning, Moses, 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 Moses. Where, where, you know, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? God sends them manna in the morning. They go, they collect the manna, and they make whatever you make with manna, banana bread or something. Uh, you, they, were, they were doing this every morning. God provided for them. Then they started complaining again. We need water. Moses struck the rock. They got water. After a little while, they start complaining again. You know, we're fed up with banana bread. We want to have something else. We want to do something else. Not just manna in the morning. We want something. like We, we've, we miss the barbecues. We, 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 want, we want flesh to eat. And so God sent them the, 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 the flocks of birds. They just came and plumped themselves there. They were kind of, kind of crash landing all around them for them to barbecue and eat. And then they complained again. They did this right at the very beginning, the very beginning of their national history. They did it right through their national history. That's the whole point of that latter, that last piece there from verse 16 to the end. I mean, all the time, in fact, at verse 10, they, they were provoking him all the time. For 40 years they put me to the test, God says. For 40 years. They complained about water at the beginning. They complained about water at the end. They were always complaining, always moaning, always growing, putting God to the test. What went wrong? Well, in that psalm, there are two places mentioned by name, Meribah and Massah. Those were two classic occasions, 40 years apart, 
that show that this rebellion by the Israelites was no blip on the radar of their faith record. It was symptomatic of their settled condition. They rebelled at the beginning, and they were still rebelling at the end. So, in Exodus 17, after just a week or so, after crossing the Red Sea, when they came to Rephidim by Mount Sinai, they ran out of water, and they're quarreling with Moses. And Moses says to them, why are you quarreling with me? This is not my problem. Why do you put the Lord to the test? It's the Lord got us here. Do you not think the Lord is going to provide for us? And we read this. He called the place Massa, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. This was their history. This was their story. And after they'd gone through the desert to the promised land, and by the way, they got there very quickly. It wasn't a long way to go. They got to the, they got to the River Jordan. They were right on the, on the tip of point of moving over into the promised land. All they had to do was get across that little River Jordan. That's all they had to do. But what did they do? They stopped there. They stopped there. They hesitated. They decided they would send over spies to check out the land. Twelve spies were sent to spy in Canaan. Ten were bad. Two were good. We used to sing that in Sunday school. You'd be glad that I'm not a singer now. They sent twelve spies over. Ten of them returned. They said, all we see are these huge giants in the land. All we see are the fortified cities. All we see is the impossibility. We cannot cross because we are not able to cope with these massive armies. And only two only two of them. Caleb and Joshua believed God. And the others spread among the Israelites a bad report. And they said this, the land we explored devours those living in it. We saw the Nephilim where the descendants of Anak. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked at them. And they disobeyed. This was their story. And the author is reminding us to look at the story of these people and to see that this as a model and example to us. Are we going to be like Israel? Are we going to be those people who are completely, continually quarreling with God, questioning what God is doing, questioning God's wisdom, questioning God's providence? Well, then secondly, the Holy Spirit says something about God. We began the service by reading Psalm 95. At the beginning of the psalm, we are told why it is, the reasons why God should be honored and praised by us. And there are several names used of God there. The name God itself, the name Savior, the, the name Great Lord, Megas Curious in the Greek, Mega Lord, the word King and all of those names, all of those names are used, both of God and of Jesus, either directly or by implication, in the first and second chapter of this book. In other words, when they talked about God, they were talking about God in the fullness of His Trinitarian life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is the God who made us. He made us. We are His made things. And everything that we have was made by Him for us. And one of the things about this God is that His character is 
made up of His attributes. We hear this repeatedly in the book of Exodus. Uh, when He reveals Himself to Moses, he, he declares His name, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. He's both righteous and holy and full of love. But He tells us something here about this God. He can be provoked. Verse 10, I was provoked by that generation. Now, when we read that word provoked, we're not to think for one minute that when we think about God, we are to think about the way we are provoked by things. I I was playing with a couple of little boys, my grandsons, and this past week. You'll be very grateful that I don't go home too often or back there too often. This is home back there too often because I'd have all these stories to tell. But they were playing, and I noticed how they were pressing each other's buttons. The younger of the two boys, the younger, the three boys, but the two boys that are older, played together a lot, and, you know, Matthew knows how to press Samuel's buttons, provoking him. Well, we know that children do that all the time, don't they? We, we do that, we do that within marriage. Husbands know how to press the buttons that provoke wives and I presume wives know how to do it, but they hide it better. Uh, But that's what we do. We must not think that when we see this word, that that's what it means when we're talking about God. We cannot make God do something in that sense. Rather, when it talks about being provoked, we're to think of this. God is His attributes. He is righteous and He is holy. And this is what righteousness and holiness means when it is faced with human rebellion. We we are the ones who change, not God. This is what righteousness and holiness means, what it looks like when there is human rebellion factored into the story. He is provoked to anger. He deliberately chooses to be angry because, why? Well, He knows that our supreme happiness is to be found in knowing Him and in doing His commands. He is angry because that is the flip side of His love for us. He knows that, that our greatest joy in, in being is to be in a relationship with Him. And so we read that He's provoked and there are two things, I think, that we see what, what, what provokes the anger of God among these people. Verse 10, first of all, they had wandering hearts. They always go astray in their hearts. That word heart, when we use it, usually we, we think of, of uh, Valentine's Day. I love you with all my heart, that kind of stuff. And there's no doubt that the word heart in the ancient world did have that implication too, of emotion, of affection. But it also had the component of intelligence, of, of wisdom, of our mind. So we might say that the heart in the Bible means our mind and our heart, our intelligence as well as our emotions. Both are com- compiled together here. So they go astray in their thinking and in their affections, in their affections for God. This is what they're doing when, you remember, Moses is up the mountain. This is another time. Moses is up the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They're on top of the mountain. There's 
there's thunder and lightning, and there's noise of voices, and there's angels, and it's a, it's a panoramic uh, uh, display of, of God's greatness. Top of the mountain, Moses goes up. He goes into the cloud. They think Moses must have been nuked by God's presence, and he's not coming back again. He's away too long. So, what do they do? They decide that they'll appease God by making an image of God. They get, a, they get this uh, golden calf, and they put it together, and they start to worship it because they have to see something. There must be something that they can imagine and put into for, some form or shape if they're going to worship the God who's there. And the Bible says that what happened was that their minds and their hearts departed from God. That's what they're doing. And the second thing that is identified in verse 10 is that not only were their minds and hearts wandering, but God says, this is his complaint, they did not know my ways. They had spiritual ignorance. It was as if they didn't know Him at all. It was as if they had no idea what God was like. Like it was as if, it was like as if the Egypt thing had never happened. It was as if they hadn't been there when Moses went up to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. You don't let my people go, you're, you're going to find out what the cost of that is. It was as if they'd forgotten all of those plagues that came upon Egypt because Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh put up a blinder before his eyes. Pharaoh refused to listen to God's Word. He refused to obey God's Word. What happened? The judgment came. And here's God's complaint with these people. It's as if you don't know me. Have you not worked this out? Your best and greatest happiness come from knowing me, following me, having a relationship with me. What are you doing? You're going your own way. You're discarding me. And do you think that can happen and you not suffer the consequences? It's as if you do not know me at all. Well, the second thing, not only do we need to know God, but we need to understand that God acts in judgment. So, in verse 11, we're told, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That was the judgment on Israel. It's not saying anything about the eternal destination of people within the Israelite community. It's not saying anything about whether if people in that Israelite community went to heaven or hell, but there was a whole generation of them who did not get into the promised land. They did not get the promise. They did not enter the promised land. All but two of them died in the desert. God keeps His Word. Whether His Word is a word of promise or a word of threat. Now, the issue then was, do we get to get into Canaan? The issue for us today is far more serious. Do we get to go into the new Jerusalem? Do we get to go into the new creation? The new heavens and the new earth? Do we get to be part of the forever future of the people of God? That's the issue today. That's why we must listen to what the Holy Spirit says. 
And the fact that these people failed to correct their habit of grumbling and murmuring against God for 40 years is an awesome reminder to us that we cannot play fast and loose with the Word of God. So he's told us what the Spirit says about Israel and about God. What about us? What does the Spirit say to us? You see how he begins today. The Spirit speaks today because, you see, the Spirit is speaking from eternity. And in eternity, there is no yesterday and there's no tomorrow. It's always the eternal today. When the Word of God speaks, it always speaks today. It speaks to you today. It is always contemporary. So today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's it saying to us today? It's saying to us today, beware of a hardened heart. A hardened heart is a settled, fixed attitude of disobedience. That's what Pharaoh did. He hardened his heart. At the beginning of the process, he might have been a bit pliable. But by the end of the process, it didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter what judgment fell. It didn't matter what terrible thing was occurring in Egypt. He could not, he would not budge. He would not move. And hardening happens incrementally. Hardening happens as we stop letting God speak to us. It may begin when there's something said that we recoil from, that that we don't like. So, we we kind of put that to one side and we think, well, that's not going to affect anything. Then as time passes, there's something else we don't like. It accumulates. Hardening happens as we find ourselves increasingly out of step with the Word of God, and the Word of God increasingly out of favor with us. Eric Alexander once said when I was a young boy, I heard him at a conference, and he said this, there are some things we will not let God speak to us about. And there are some people we will not let God speak to us through. Beware of hardening. Beware of unbelief. There's the other thing. Watch out. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I have a friend, had a friend. He's since distanced himself from me and from everybody else that was in the circle of his friendship. He was a great preacher. And I began to see that there were shifts in his thinking, and I spoke to some people who knew him about these, and we were setting ourselves up to talk to him when he abandoned his family and 
abandoned the ministry and abandoned the faith. That's what that's what's being talked about here. Is that a danger? Yes, it is a danger. It's a very real danger that there are people sitting among us here confessing the same faith for whom that faith is not real living faith. They don't know that. We don't know that. It's the end result that demonstrates it. A friend of mine today is nowhere. He scares me. He was frighteningly good as a preacher. So we are to be aware of an evil heart of unbelief that leads us to fall away. That word is apostatize. To fall away from the living God. That's the greatest defection of all. The God of the nations are idols. They're not living. They're dead. But our God is the living God. Well, what are we to do? We're to encourage one another. Look at verse 13. He says this. We're to encourage one another. Here's the Holy Spirit's word. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. You can't, you can't evade that, can you? The author is saying to us, this command is to go on as long as it's today. Well, it's today today, isn't it? Yesterday it was today. Today's today. Tomorrow will be today when we get there. As long as it's called today. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see? We're not to live the Christian life as isolated people. We're to live the Christian life in fellowship with one another. None of us can allow ourselves to be so cut off from other believers that we're not being exhorted by them. Now, here we're not talking about the public exhortation that goes on in church. We exhort one another publicly as we're doing in sermons. This is private exhortation. This is wives exhorting their husbands, husbands exhorting their wives. This is parents exhorting their children, and children exhorting their parents. This is, this is friends exhorting one another. Sometimes when we see something going wrong, do you know what we do? We talk to other people about them. You know, so-and-so is really going a bit weird, really. I'm not doing this and that, the other thing. We start talking about it. But do we ever go and talk to them about it? Do we ever say to them, look, I'm a bit afraid that, that, that something's going wrong in your Christian life. Something's awfully off the, the rails, or there's something just not quite right there. Do you ever say to them? That's what it means to exhort one another. And exhorting sometimes involves encouraging and, and comforting. Uh, in the Fellowship of the Rings, you know, Frodo, Frodo becomes discouraged, ready to give up. And it's Samwise Gamgee who's there to encourage and exhort him keep going. Well, we're to encourage each other. We're to examine ourselves. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is one of, one of the themes of this book of Hebrews, that the mark of genuine discipleship is that you endure to the end. There are two aspects to this doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. One is the preserving power of God, and the other is the perseverance 
the endurance, the keep keeping onness of the Christian. And the one is manifested by the other. The one is manifested by the other. The one whom God sustains and upholds perseveres to the end. And I want to encourage you when, when you feel when you feel your confidence is shaking, when you feel your, your Christian life perhaps is not what it was once, and you're being weighed down, perhaps you're being weighed down by guilt because you've done things that are, you know to be wrong, and perhaps you can break the habit of that guilt. Maybe you're discouraged because your prayers apparently are not answered. You're dealing with loss. You're dealing with a broken heart. Or perhaps things in your life have gone wrong. You've lost your job. You've lost your, 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 your purpose, the thing that got you up in the morning and got you out, you've lost that. In those times, you are under the assault of the evil one who wants to make those things God's fault. And he wants to turn your heart against God so that you fall away from the living God. And I want to say if you're in that place this morning, I want to encourage you to hold your confidence to the end, to hold fast to Jesus to the end. Why? Because you belong to Him. You belong to Him. You are His. He's yours. And trials here, and temptations here, and testing here will make all the sweeter all the more precious, all the more amazing the time when we get there and are with Him forever. Keep keeping on. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would strip the idols from our hearts and enable us, Lord, as Your people to keep keeping on in our Christian life and profession until at last we see You as You are in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.